you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. Pauline, thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. Some of you would have heard uh, Pauline uh, speak a little bit for, before. Before you start, Pauline, tell us about yourself and what you do when you're not sitting at the front of the church. Okay, um, I'm... I'm, what am I? I'm a black Christian woman. Um, I was born in the UK. I grew up in the East Ends of London um, to Caribbean parents. Um, now, I trained as a musician um, uh, for my first degree. Now I teach at university. I teach at Goldsmiths College. Um, I'm a mother. I've got five um, children, five girls. What else can I tell you? Um, that's about it, really. <laughs> and I've been attending this church for about the last two years. Yeah, yeah, which has been, fant- uh, which has <coughs> been really fantastic. Pauline's brought so much to us as a community, and, and one of those things we're going to talk about a little bit later on. <coughs> but uh, first of all, Pauline, when it comes to BME inclusion, black minority ethnicity, or BAME, ba- black and Asian minority ethnicity inclusion, what's the problem? Okay, I think here we're thinking about, um, in particular, some of the things that are going on in education, um, which is my professional background, and also thinking ahead to the conference that we're planning in a couple and of weeks' time. And this is the conference that we're planning. Uh, so, uh, there you go. This isn't just about this conference, actually, and the conference isn't about a conference. The conference is about launching a movement, but we'll tell you about that later. So, some, some specific statistics, um, as an academic, I'm very keen on evidence. Um, we are told that out of um, 21,000 heads in the UK, only 39 of them are black. Um, that's 1.1% of a 4.5% black population in the UK. In my own university, one of my colleagues this week has been advertised, um, highlighted all over the media, um, Nicola Rollock, and she did some research about black female professors. Now, in that regard, we have 25 black female professors in the UK. That's a percentage of 0.1% of all professors in the UK. We are told repeatedly about underachievement of um, Caribbean kids particularly. Um, And this is against a background of um, black boys actually do very well in primary school, but something seems to happen when they're going to to secondary and progressing through through, um, the school system. So I quote those statistics to say that generally right across the board in the education system, There is ethnic um, disparity at every single level. Um, And I think that this is a huge problem. Um, Schools are an important place for socialization. Um, Black children need to see people that look like them in leadership. White children need to see children that that are black. Asian children, we all need to see um, uh, education diversity. Um, so I think that's, a real, that's one of the, the, the real problems there. And, it, and in actual fact, Valerie Amos, uh, she's uh, a Labour uh, baroness, actually. We do 
left off Baroness on the publicity, uh, but we should put that on. Uh, Valerie is uh, the director of SOAS, and she's the first black uh, person, let alone woman, to ever be appointed in this country to such a role, which is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? And then, as you say, Pauline, we ask ourselves all those other social questions about the overpopulation of black men in mm. our prisons, because if they're underrepresented in educational leadership, they are massively overrepresented in the prison system. And of course, in London, uh, we know, though this isn't true around the country actually, but in London, the issue of uh, killings and, and youth violence is hugely to do uh, with black young men. So it seems like all these things are knotted up together, doesn't it? I think so. I think that if, if education is a place for socialization, um, you know, young people need to see in schools the vision of a better future. And I know, you know, often people put the, the, the problem of society at the um, point of education. And it's not, of course, it's not just about education. It's not just about schools. But what happens in our schools is terribly important. And all children need to see role models. And I think it's particularly important for black children to see role models um, that, that look like them, people that they can aspire to um, within education. So this is about having a stake in society. If we're trying to persuade people who are disadvantaged to have a stake in society, they need to see people that look like them in um, positions of leadership. So, uh, Pauline, tell us uh, your story. Why does this matter to you? Um, well, it matters to me on a number of levels. I think, firstly, it's a matter of justice. You know, uh, Martin Luther King said that um, injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere, and it's a matter of justice. I want to live in a society that's inclusive, and that's just, and that's fair, and that's equ equitable. Um, so as a Christian, I think it matters to me. Um, I think even if I, w I, I were not a Christian, um, it would matter to me on grounds of justice. Um, in my own personal story, I've been um, uh, at the uh, recipient of institutional racism and unconscious bias. And one of the things I was going to say is we hear quite a lot nowadays about um, unconscious bias. You know, that's preferring people that maybe look like you, um, aligning yourself with others that have a similar background. And it's easy, isn't it? It's just easy to align yourself and to, to promote people through institutions that you have an understanding of what their background is. That's, that's a shortcut. Um, difference is always very difficult to negotiate. Um, but, you know, so there's lots of unconscious bias training, but I would like to suggest as a black person that there's, there's lots of conscious bias as well. Whether we like it or not, institutional racism exists. There are people, and I'm sure none of them are in this room, but there are people who don't want to see people that are different advance in society. They don't want to see black and ethnic minorities um, at the upper echelons of society. There is institutional racism. 
Now, um, the McPherson report in, that was 1999, I'm sure most of you will be familiar with the murder of Stephen Lawrence and how the police, um, as a, a service, dealt with that so badly. And McPherson identified that there was institutional racism in many of our institutions. I would suggest that that's still ongoing, even though in the police service a lot was done to root that out. Um, I think that we need to look at institutional racism in, the, in education, because what happens in education is reflective of the rest of society. So we need to be able to look at it, we need to name it. I think in this country we don't like to talk about racism, and we find it very uncomfortable. Um, we look over at the states and we say, oh yeah, you know, the states, they don't, they're really bad. They hate black people, they imprison them. There's none of that in this country. We're such a liberal country. But institutional racism exists in this country as well. So uh, Pauline, uh, tell us that, because you encountered racism when you studied music. I oh, yes, yeah, sorry. I'll be, uh, yeah, I forgot. I was telling my story, wasn't I? I, was, mm. I meant to tell my story. So I started teaching in education. Um, it's over 20 years ago now. I started teaching in higher education. Um, and um, I was six months into the job. Um, I was very fresh-faced. Um, had no grey hairs like I have now. I was much slimmer as well. Um, and it was difficult because I hadn't come from a higher education background. I'd worked in the voluntary sector for many years, applied for the job, a job in the university, got the job, and um, I was working to the best of my ability. I was struggling, but I was working hard. And a student came to me, I think I was about eight months in, one of the students came to me, a white student, and said, you need to know um, that the Professor X, I won't name her, just in case anyone knows her in this room. Um, Professor X is organizing a petition amongst the students against you because she doesn't think that you're up to the job and wants to get rid of you. And this petition is going to be sent to the Vice-Chancellor. And I, I was flabbergasted because, I mean, you know, we, I mean, I'm sure many people are professionals in this room. We know that there are processes that you go through. Um, I hadn't even completed my probation. If they wanted to get rid of me, they could have got rid of me at the end of my probation. But she had galvanized the students to sign this petition against me. I'm sure that would not have happened if I was white. I'm convinced it wouldn't have happened if I was white. I was the only black person in my department at that time and now in another institution, I'm the only black person in my department. And tell us as well, because before all that happened, I know that also, because you studied music. Oh, yes. I spent my life, well, not my whole life, but a lot of my time, trying to get Pauline to play um, on Sunday, because she is a brilliant musician. Would you like to see Pauline play more? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Pauline, when you've played, you've played the piano, but your first instrument's the double bass, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so I studied the double bass at music college. Um, I went to college in Cardiff. And to be honest, growing up, I hadn't really experienced very much racism growing up in East London. You know, I think people rolled along quite happily in terms of personal racism anyway. I, I mean, obviously, I was aware of the structural inequalities even as a youngster. But when I went off to Cardiff, um, at the end of my first term there... Um, again, it was one of the professors, a white male professor, who came to me. Um, it was Christmas. We were just about to separate for the holidays. And he said to me, um, 
And by the way, don't, come, don't bother coming back after Christmas because you're not going to make it through. You haven't got what it takes. So s save us all some time and don't waste your time. Don't waste our time. Don't bother coming back after Christmas. And so, you know, you know, you talk to any black person, they will tell you these stories. You know, we hear these statistics about 39 um, head teachers, and I'm like, well, I'm not surprised. Actually, I could sit you down for the rest of the day here and tell you loads and loads of stories of how I've encountered racism. You were told you'd never get a job, weren't you, in an orchestra? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't get a job in an orchestra, and, and, and that was a thing that I suppose I chose a bastion, the orchestral world, which is very white, which is m quite male, and playing the double bass as well. Um, there was no way I was going to get a job playing the, playing the double bass in an orchestra, and that would have been over 30 years ago now. If you look at most orchestras nowadays, there's still very, very few black people in orchestras. And, and I have to say, you know, this is against the background of um, migrant parents, Caribbean parents, African parents, who believe in education as being the only means of progressing through society. So my father didn't have very much education. He brought me up um, as a single parent and he always emphasized the role of education. So while my friends were out playing, I was home doing spellings, doing my reading, you know, having to study. Um, it was, there was absolutely no conversation in my family about whether I'd go to university or not. It was, it was accepted that I would go off to university. And for many black, and, um, uh, black parents, this is the case. Education is really emphasized. So it's really problematic where people are going through the system. We see um, uh, people are being recruited um, but they're not progressing through the system and they're not being retained in the system as well. And I suggest to you that this is because of institutional racism that exists in all of our institutions. So, um, Pauline, Pauline has been on a little group with me, along with Joan, who's the third person uh, whose picture's down there. Joan is a head teacher uh, uh, in London and has done this amazing job, not only turning the school around, um, doing a fantastic job with that in all sorts of ways, which is fascinating to me, um, but also building uh, a senior leadership team in her school which reflects the ethnic makeup of the community she's serving. So often you discover in education, in the city of London here for instance, you have white people educating black people and we have to do something about that and it won't happen without a lot of energy. So um, Pauline and I and a few others have been uh, planning this movement not an event, but a movement. So how is our conference and movement going to help with all this, do you think? I think the first thing is, I mean, one of the main reasons for coming together for the conference is to write a manifesto. So, and the manifesto is going to be delivered to the powers that be in government. So I, I think the first thing is making demands of the government. It's not okay to have just 39 black head teachers um, within the UK. So I think that's the first thing. I think equally important is raising the conversation and not being afraid to talk about it, not to be colorblind. And I think it's very easy to be colorblind and say, oh, well, there, there are other factors. And there are other factors, of course. It's not a straightforward thing. But I think we need not to be afraid to talk about race. 
Um, one another um, moves from the conference that we're hoping to set up ne regional networks as well so people can ha um, have support within the system, identify progression routes um, and identify some of the barriers and look at ways of dismantling them. Um, so I think, I think those three things are really, really important. But also on the ground, I think that for us as people who may not be in education, it's about turning around cultures as well. So, I mean, most of us, I, I assume, work in organizations. What, what are those organization cultures like? So McPherson talked about the canteen culture of the police which there was casual racism. So it's, it's the discussion around the water cooler. It's the type of jokes that exists. It's the, the type of people who are marginalized, the type of people who might be sitting on their own, the type of people who don't get to speak at meetings. One of the things that um, uh, this report um, about black female professors. You know, one of the stories is a, a, a black female professor, she had her hand up for half an hour um, in a conference and she just wasn't chosen. So it's all those, perhaps they're unconscious, but thinking about the cultures within our organizations, within the circles that we're in, and challenging and countering those cultures and speaking up against those things. So um, as we get this manifesto together, We've had a group of leaders beginning to write a draft of this over the last few weeks. Lots of work being done on it. And then the draft of the manifesto is going to come to the day. Secretary of State's uh, going to speak, as are others. But the whole day is going to be given over in small groups that everybody gets a chance to speak um, and, and put their view forward to put in together the manifesto. And then the last action of the day will be that some of the delegates will press send on these screens, press send, and the finished manifesto for action in communities locally, everywhere around the country, will be sent to the Secretary of State, who would have left, be left by then. And we hope that the first meeting nationally of the movement that's going to bring this around through local uh, chapters, if you like, across the country, is going to take place in uh, the Department for Education, because this is a very, very serious issue, isn't it? So, um, Pauline, if all of this takes off, what, what would success look to you like in your lifetime? In my lifetime, I'd love to see a black prime minister. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Um, uh, and and that, a black prime minister doesn't mean to say that all the racial ills in, in the UK are dealt with. Barack Obama, by, by all means, didn't solve all the racial ills in America. Um, but it's symbolic, isn't it? So if at the very top we see signs of a change, Hopefully, that filters down. Success is living in a more um, inclusive society where all people, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, ableism, sexuality, all people are represented and all people are able to fulfill their potential. I want to live in a society where all people are able to fulfill their potential. That's what success looks like to me. And so what... what do we do? Uh, because obviously that's an issue within our church. Most of our leadership team are white, not black. Um, uh, we'd like to see more uh, uh, black people preaching. And, 
and leading, etc., etc. So this is a job for us, and it's a job for every church. And of course, we have black churches and white churches, and that, of course, flies into the face of the Bible reading we just had, because we are one. So you express your oneness by being one. So what can we do, or what are some of the things that we can do? On the church level... Uh, on any level on, you want to talk about I mean, about I think um, starting at the grass... Well, things have got to happen on a number of levels. So we've talked about bringing pressure to bear on governments and in our institutions. But on a grassroots level, I think that we as people of faith have got a lot to do. So we need to examine our networks, to examine our cultures, as I've said already. Um, do we have black friends? In our institutions, are we able to sponsor the people, black people? Are we able to support them? Are we able to advocate on, on their behalf? I'll tell, I'll tell another story. My father, um, part of the Windrush generation, um, some people you've probably seen in the media this week were sent, um, it's not even back to the Caribbean because they, they well, came from the Caribbean when they were very young and know nothing of the Caribbean. So there was that whole hostile environment that's been spoke, spoke of. But my father came here in the 1950s. Um, he experienced all the racism that, you know, I'm sure that you're all familiar with, no blacks, no dogs, um, no Irish. Um, I, I, he also said to me there was one point um, where he had three jobs. Um, I think that he was living in Sheffield, but he couldn't get accommodation in Birmingham. He had these three jobs in Birmingham, but he couldn't get accommodation in Birmingham. He had the jobs, but no accommodation. But all of that aside, one of the, the stories that he tells is that um, within his church and within his, his network, there were two um, groups of uh, elderly white people who really looked after him. There's a, I even remember their names, Mr. and Mrs. Reed. Um, who adopted him like a son. So he would have been 20 when he came to this country. And these white elderly people, um, he didn't live with them, but they invited him around for Sunday dinner. They advocated on his behalf. They really looked after him. They wrote letters to his mother in Jamaica to say, Reg is doing okay. We're looking after him. You don't need to worry. Isn't that beautiful? Um, there was Mrs. King. My dad um, loved to play the piano. And uh, I think Mrs. King was returning to Australia and she had a whole archive of sheet music that she gave to my dad because she knew of his love for the piano. So there were these people, these white people in his life, in a very hostile environment in the UK in the 19, um, in 1950s and 60s, who really stepped outside of their comfort zone to befriend him. There was nothing in it for them. And they, you know, they probably were quite unusual. So I think that I would challenge all of us to think, you know, what can I do to step out of my comfort zone to challenge ethnic and racial uh, disparities in society? So looking at our friendship groups, looking at our institution, you know, those of you who have power, um, don't take a colorblind approach identify, you know, are there gaps in the, the leadership of this institution? What can I do about that? In this church, I think we need to have the conversation. We need to talk about it. Um, it's not right that this church, where it's located, 
is, what, 98% white? Um, that's not right. That's a problem. We need to do something about it. We need to examine the culture of the church. I mean, the first time I came here, I think the first thing I said to Steve, I was kind of, you know, a bit cheeky. I said, how many black people have you got on your leadership then, Steve? <laughs> so we need to ask the questions and not be afraid to have the conversation. And it, I don't think there's an easy answer. You know, um, it's difficult, um, it's challenging, but I, I was thinking about um, Matthew 25, um, where, you know, it's the, um, we're called to befriend the stranger, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry and so forth, but we need to extend that as well, don't we? What sort of cultures, what sort of environments are we creating? Do those cultures feel inclusive? Are they accommodating? Do they feel welcoming to people who are different? Are they, you know, when we have our coffee after church, who is it that we're talking to? Are we always talking to the same people? Or do we talk to black people, you know? Um, so those are some of the things that who, we, who we do can't you, do. Who do you invite round for dinner? Have you ever invited a black family round to lunch or dinner? Can you remember when it was? Who are your good friends? from a different nationality. These are all important things, aren't they? What we're going to do now, you see, I, Pauline was worried that she'd had nothing to say about this. <laughs> what we're going to do now is I'm going to ask the guys or someone to play some music and it's your chance to scribble down a question and then I'm going to ask uh, somebody, Nath or um, Danielle if she's around or um, Rachel sat over there or any, anybody. Uh, we haven't organised this particularly well. Uh, to um, just hand in some questions. And uh, anyway, talk to yourself as you write some questions, talk to others, and uh, here we go. There's uh, loads and loads of questions, uh, lots of questions. One Pauline says, can you play us a song, please? <laughs> not, not today. <laughs> yeah, please, the mic. Not today. <laughs> yeah, uh, soon. Uh, I think Pauline said soon. <laughs> so that's... Uh, that's really good. And another one says, Can, will you become my piano teacher? I don't do that anymore. <laughs> right. So um, actually, there's too many questions to answer, but these are great, and we will not throw them in the bin. We will feed these all into the discussion for the day in the conference, besides anything else. I should say, otherwise we'll forget, that for, if you're part of this, uh, the, the Oasis community, um, the £15 is reduced to £10. You need, need to go on the website, and there's a code uh, that you can use, which is... What's the code, Nate? For, for people on the, from here on the website to... OCW, Oasis Church Waterloo, and the £10 is because lunch is included, so you're basically paying for your lunch, that's, that's effectively it. But um, uh, there you go, that's all that. Pauline's, I've given Pauline three questions that link into each other, so yeah. Okay, um, I'll, one is how do, we ten, how do we attract more BAME to... How do so we attract more BAME people into our, our church, church congregation? congregation. Um, another one is, if our congregation is 95% white, is that because we're all middle class, like most Christian churches? And the other one is, how do we reconcile the inclusion of gay people? Um, how, how, how do we... Re <laughs> Neither of us can read. <laughs> how do we reconcile the inclusion of gay 
people policy with the issue that a lot of black Christians uh, don't have that policy. A lot of yeah. black Christians wouldn't come here, in other words, because yeah. we're inclusive of other groups. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that, that is a, that's a challenge. I think that is a challenge that we've got to recognize and grapple with somehow. But I would also say that, you know, there are many are here, black um, gay people who come here. There are also lots of um, young people out there who are black who, do, who, who don't have that um, a view. So it's trying to reach out to those people and build alliances and build um, networks with those people. And um, yes, and, and I, I accept the issue of class as well, that class, this is a middle class church, isn't it? But increasingly, there are more black middle class people as well. So these, these issues aren't insurmountable. Um, but there are things that we can do. We've just got to try to identify what some of those things may look like. Great. Um, so, um, there's just so many. So, there's one for me, really. It says, how many heads of, I think it says, how many heads of Oasis schools in the UK are black and how are you going to fix it? Well, in actual fact, um, there are 52 head teachers in the Oasis group because there are 52 schools and every single one of them is white except for one um, who's Asian. And then, of course, there's me who founded it who's half Asian. My, I grew up through the 50s and 60s, like Pauline said. I had a white girlfriend, and her parents told me that she could never be seen with me again, because if we ever got married, she reported this to me, our children would be throwbacks. That's what she called them. So um, I'm probably the closest uh, thing uh, uh, outside of um, uh, uh, another head teacher within Oasis at the moment. The problem for Oasis education is that we reflect exactly what the situation is in the country and it's something we have to do something about. My way of doing something about this is to get this campaign going. That's the truth, okay? So this is about inside Oasis and everywhere else. This isn't a conference for Oasis, it's a conference for everyone, but in actual fact, already um, inside Oasis, even this week with the educational team, we're having conversations about how we develop our policies faster because of this. You always bring about change by doing something. Remember my big principle? Skin in the game's the only thing that counts. No PhDs ever count for anything. Pauline's got a PhD. What, what I mean... <laughs> what, what I mean is having a PhD is a great thing, but then... You, it's a great thing, but then you've got to do something about it, haven't you? You've got to do something about it. So let me ask you a question, Pauline. <laughs> I forgot that. There you go. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, as a as a black gay man, just I, I have no idea what this question says at this moment. There are too many to uh, analyse. And I, uh, my, the opticians busted my glasses yesterday, so I'm wearing some old ones which I can hardly see through. So, uh, so as a black gay, gay man just joining this church, I, I. <laughs> Hey, what's I, I don't feel as included as I expect, I, as I expected. I'm a black gay man just joining this church. I don't feel as included as I expected. Is this my fault? What can or should I do about it? Uh, yeah, and um, I, I, so when I first came to this church, is the microphone on? Try that one. Okay. 
So when I, I first came to this church, I, I knew of Steve. My husband knows Steve and had worked with him. Um, I felt like an outsider. And I think I said to Steve, um, well, I can't really be myself. I can't be the person that I want to be. I think I, I remember saying to him, I can't really kick my shoes off and feel like I'm at home. Um, and it takes work and it takes time. And now I've got some really good friends. I've formed relationships with people. Um, and now I, now I feel entirely at home. Um, so I think that it's, it's a two-way thing. It's um, for black people who have got to reach out, but also white people have got to reach out as well. I mean, you know, I'm good friends with Andrew, and I'm always banging on to Andrew about um, whiteness and, and, you know, racialized discourses and so on and so forth. And... Andrew always says that I've helped him to see the world through black eyes. And I think that's a really good thing. And so it's about forming relationships with people. Um, but it's also, I think, about for this church to realize if there's a black person who's come through the door in a predominantly white environment, they might feel very uncomfortable. So is there anything that you can do to make them feel a bit more at home and to ensure that they've come back, they come back. I spoke to a good friend of mine, actually, who is, um, uh, she used to work for the Methodist Church, I think it was, and she said that she came to Oasis on a Sunday night, the Sunday night con congregation, and nobody spoke to her. And she said she was horrified because she felt that the church um, emphasized inclusion, and she walked in, and she walked out, no one spoke to her. We need to be mindful of these things. It's, it's, not, it's not good. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so there's a challenge in that as well, isn't there, for us all? Because I think this kind of, you know, it's wonderful. Uh, it, it, it's, it's such a tension, isn't it? Because afterwards, when we finish, you want to talk to your friends that you've not seen all week and tell them what's going on. And we shouldn't feel guilty for spending time talking to our mates. But it's also about that looking out for the person who hasn't been here before, who stood on their own and uh, engaging with them as well. Does inclusion also include the white working class and people who voted Brexit? <laughs> inclusion includes everyone, doesn't it? You know, no, no one is left out. So, you know, we've got to find a way to have difficult conversations and, and to find a way to progress together to work together, you know. What does it mean to be salt and light in all of our environments? What does it mean to bring people along with us, to exist, to coexist with difference? So, um, you know, what does it mean for me to have a friend who's a Brexiteer? What does that mean? So we've got, you know, we've got to work at these things. Mm. Um, we're going to just, uh, one last question, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to pray about this together. But having... Uh, Having been to a few Afro-African-Caribbean churches, the worship style and culture is very different to Oasis and may predominant uh, and, and to, uh, to white churches as generally as well. Do you think that the lack of mixed congregations is more to do with what we prefer culturally than to racism of any sort? Um, perhaps yes and no. I mean, you know, some people will know that um, when black people came here in the 1950s, 
um, black majority churches started because when they went to churches, they were told, this is not a church for you, go to the church down the road. That was why black majority churches started. So, yeah, there is a difference in, in worship style. Um, but we've come on, you know, quite a few years since then. We are living in much more multicultural times. Um, but as I've said before, I think racism exists in society. Maybe we prefer the plus um, uh, idea, you know, people like us. We prefer to stay with people like us um, because, it's, because it's easy, because it doesn't require any require for us to engage in any conflict and try to undo some of the patterns of the past. So I think perhaps it is about worship to some extent, but not entirely is what I would say. Great. And then one last question, which is really for me, not you, Pauline. It says, does Oasis have any relationships with black churches in the area and opportunities to partner with them in some work? The answer to that is Oasis has relationships with just about everyone in the area, not just the churches, but the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Islamic centers, etc., etc., local businesses. We do inclusion. We're constantly working at it. In fact, you will know, some of you, that the group of churches, in the area, which is called South Bank Churches, is something that Roe and I really pioneered and have driven forward and has ended up with lots of working together. None of that is to say we don't need to do more. The problem is that I think you just said, Pauline, that most people do their own thing. Very few people in life do someone else's thing. We, stick, we become very us-orientated and inclusion is about becoming very other-orientated. So I think, Pauline, you've given us this amazing challenge this morning. We're going to pray about it now, but the question must be, what am I going to do about it? This is one response. Please come along. Be part of that uh, group. It's not just for black people. <laughs> it's for the white power holders to think through how our behaviours need to be different. So I see you there. A huge round of applause for Pauline. Together, and Pumi and I are going to lead us in some prayer, and then we're going to end um, our service singing a hymn together, Amazing Grace. Um, so, uh, let's, let's. Let us pray. We invite you into this time of prayer and reflection. I will be leading some prayers to help us think about tolerance, acceptance, and inclusion. Let's pray. Mother God, thank you for the opportunity uh, we have as a community to think about these issues. We have explicitly accepted that we need to tackle the difficult questions and uncomfortable truths and to put our faith into action. We thank you for the dialogue and the debate we have and that we are driven forward to addressing issues of systematic injustice, institutional racism, exclusion because of gender, sexuality, ability, and many more. The Bible says in Romans 16 verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Ref um, we reflect on the times 
we have struggled to be tolerant, where we have shown pride and arrogance, where we have been consciously or subconsciously prejudiced or have witnessed this exclusion and not spoken out, God help us and bind us in our faith together, unify us. Fill us with your spirit that we may be uncomfortable, unsatisfied by lip service to inclusion, and instead give us courage to be utterly inclusive as Christ was in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Just take a moment to reflect on this in your own life and ask God to make you uncomfortable um, and put your faith into action. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org.